Welcome to Seven Heads, Ten Horns with Klaus Yoder and Travis Stevens. Episode 2 Satan's Dragons and Tyrants The Devil's Prehistory in the Hebrew Bible Today, we're going to be dealing with an odd assortment of characters from the Hebrew Bible who are antecedents or precursors to the character of the devil. The three character types we will be discussing are Satans, or accusers, sea monsters, and evil tyrants. At first glance, it seems like the three characters can be grouped into two, those who operate according to divine governance, i.e. the angelic accusers, or Satans, and those who are directly at war with God, the primeval water dragons and the evil tyrants, namely. And yet, upon closer inspection, it will become apparent that they all play a role inside the divine plan. For each of the three, evil, misfortune, and chaos serve a particular purpose in the divine economy, or at least that's the hope. In fact, assertions of God's power over the forces of evil often appear in moments in the Hebrew Bible when God seems pretty removed from the scenes of crisis befalling his chosen people. None of these character types, taken on their own terms, is the devil as he will emerge later, but they do foreshadow Christian notions of a devil who is never really outside of God's control. Let's start with the Satans. This is a loaded term because in Christianity, it denotes a particular character who is the cosmic enemy of God but it comes from the biblical Hebrew Hashatan, which gets translated variously as the accuser or the adversary. In different moments of the Hebrew Bible, this role, not a person, a role, is played by angels, as in the story of Balaam's ass in the book of Numbers, as well as political enemies, such as the Edomites in 1 Kings 11. In the book of Job, this role of the accuser gets expanded a bit. The accuser is part of the heavenly court bureaucracy, the angelic politburo, referred to in some places, a spy and provoker of human folly. In this book of the Bible, it is the Lord who sets up the accuser in his collision course with Job, commanding the angelic persecutor to consider such a pure person. But the accuser wants to see how long Job's piety can last in the face of intense misfortune, i.e. the death of his children and the loss of his property. When Job comes through this first test, God scoffs the accuser, blaming him for pushing the Lord to bring this sorrow upon Job needlessly. This is rather disingenuous on God's part. It was, after all, the Lord who provoked the accuser to test Job, not vice versa. We see something like this shifting of responsibility from the big boss to the bad cop of the angelic police force in 1 Chronicles 21. In this episode, David, King David commands a census of the people apparently a big no-no, through the provocation of Hashatan. But an earlier version of the story, transmitted in 2 Samuel 24, indicates that it is the Lord who is responsible for moving David to this apparently despicable act. Strange as this is to say in 2020, which is a census year in the United States and is of enormous importance for policy. Back to Job. The accuser doesn't have much patience for God's gaslighting and replies skeptically, quote, skin for skin, all a man has, he will give up for his life, but lay a hand on his bones and his flesh, and he will surely blaspheme you to your face. God considers this point and agrees to let Job's misfortunes multiply, as if to say, sure, go on and give that chumpel. Thanks, God. 
when the Satan goes out to oppress Job, some more at the end of chapter 2, it is actually the last time he appears at all in, the book, in this book of the Bible. Scholars even think that the dialogue between God and the accuser at the beginning of Job represents a later edition. For most of Job, what is at issue is that God has put Job to the test, not that some angelic subordinate has gotten out of line. This actually seems to be the case in another example of the Satan. In Zechariah 3, when the accuser or the adversary opposes Joshua for the high priesthood for the reconstructed temple of Jerusalem, he is roundly rebuked by God himself. Talk about organizational dysfunction. Some scholars see this as a shift in the idea of Hashatan. By going too far in opposing the Lord's plan, it starts to appear less as a function and more as a person. We see a bit of this muddying of the waters between role and personhood in Job. The accuser pushes back on the Lord's opinions, effectively challenging God. This cheekiness transforms into open confrontation, albeit briefly, in Zechariah. That said, the accusers and adversaries who give us the name Satan are anything but God's cosmic enemies in the Hebrew Bible. But that doesn't mean that God doesn't have enemies, and these enemies figure as important precursors for later conceptions of the devil. In the New Testament's book of Revelations, chapter 12, the devil appears in the form of a dragon. You can find references to dragons and sea monsters throughout the Hebrew Bible, such as in the Psalms, Isaiah, and Job. In chapter 40 of Job, the Lord, to demonstrate his power, boasts to Job of having fished the monstrous Leviathan out of the sea with a hook. Then God keeps the monster penned up as a status symbol pet, sort of like in Tiger King. But this image of the containment of a monster belies the importance of divine combat in the Hebrew Bible. Some scholars see this combat against the sea and its dragons as representing the drama of creation. Others link it to the paradigmatic moment of liberation in the book of Exodus, the parting of the Red Sea, or Sea of Reeds more literally, as part of a political legend. Whatever the case may be, the sources that celebrate the Lord's defeat and dismemberment of the sea dragon Leviathan are the same sources that are enthusiastic about the enthronement of King David. In older sources from Babylon and Ugarit, the primeval defeat of the sea marks the beginning of not only the world, but also a monarchy. This link between creation and victory also ends up pointing forward. The defeat of Leviathan marks the beginning of the world, but also its end. The monster has to be subdued at least once more. And this is expressed really clearly in the book Isaiah, chapter 51, verses 9 through 11. Quote, O arm of the Lord, awake as in days of old, as in former ages. It was you that hacked Rahab in pieces, that pierced the dragon. It was you that dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, that made the abysses of the sea, a road the redeemed might walk. So let the ransomed of the Lord return and come with shouting to Zion, crowned with joy everlasting. Let's backtrack one second to focus on the problem of the monarch in the sources we've been discussing in the Hebrew Bible. Royalty is not uniformly appreciated across this bound-together library of ancient Judaism. The exodus out of Egypt features the evil Pharaoh, who stubbornly persecutes the children of Israel in spite of ample evidence of the Lord's power. One of the things the Israelites escape when they leave Egypt is a bad king. Going forward, they are led by Moses, a prophet, then Joshua, a warrior, and for a while, ad hoc judges who tried to keep order throughout the confederation of tribes. 
Eventually, frustrated by some corrupt judges, the people clamor for a king and get Saul. Long story short, that doesn't go so great. The divinely anointed David next becomes king. Along with his enthronement comes the eventual construction of the Temple of Jerusalem and the priestly cult centered on burnt offerings made there. Many of the prophets were more conservative, skeptical of binding worship of the Lord to a particular place like the Temple in Jerusalem. Their vision for Israel was also different. Whereas the elites in this kingdom pointed to an eternal covenant made between Yahweh and David, the prophets emphasized that the special relationship between God and Israel was conditional on morality and piety. This ambivalence about kings relates to the third evil character we will be discussing in Jewish scripture today, the tyrant. The petition in Psalm 74 for Yahweh, my king of old, to, quote, crush the head of Leviathan once more, not only applies to some mythological beast, but also to historical embodiments of evil. The psalm isn't written in response to Godzilla attacking Jerusalem, but the siege and destruction undertaken by the Babylonians in the 6th century BCE. In a similar way, the apocalyptic imagination, so important for late antique Judaism and the emergence of Christianity, developed in response to a particular historical event, the desecration of the Temple of Jerusalem. After the conquest of Judea by the Seleucid Empire, which was founded around 320 BCE as an offshoot of Alexander the Great's fragmenting empire, Israel experienced what is called Hellenization, the cultural hegemony of ancient Greece. One particularly aggressive emperor, Antiochus IV Epiphanes, attempted to jumpstart this Hellenization process around 167 BCE by what is referred to in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament as the, quote, desolating abomination or appalling abomination in the Temple of Jerusalem. As best as we can tell, Epiphanes had the temple looted, banded sacrifices, and perhaps erected statues or altars to pagan gods to desecrate the ritual space. This provoked a full-on rebellion recorded in the first and second books of Maccabees. It also generated an enormous amount of theological anxiety. How could such a humiliation be possible? What made such speculations apocalyptic was that this was not merely God punishing the people for their moral failures. No, this desolating abomination had been instituted by a tyrant whose faults went far beyond those typical of rulers. Rulers who the prophets earlier on, depicted as mere tools of divine chastisement against the children of Israel. Antiochus wasn't merely a tool of God, but rather an outright enemy, whose epithet Theos Epiphanes means God manifest. He vowed to turn Jerusalem into, quote, a cemetery for Jews, destroy their religion, and continuously blaspheme their God. His aggressive political, cultural, and military postures loomed as an existential threat. Given its severity, the final chapters of the book of Daniel, written during this crisis, represent Antiochus as the final enemy who was passed away before the redemption of Israel at the end of the world. Second Maccabees depicts God taking revenge upon this rebel tyrant, hurling him from his charging chariot, digesting him alive with flesh-eating worms, his body wretched, stinking, he begs for mercy, offering to convert to Judaism and tore the world testifying to its truth. But God has no patience for apocalyptic foes just as he will have no patience for the devil when it is time to throw him into the lake of fire in Revelation. Despite this harshness, the apocalyptic framework represents Antiochus, or the Leviathan, as at once the incarnation of chaos and evil, but also a force being channeled by the inscrutable foresight of the deity. 
We have that image from Job of the Leviathan as God's pet goldfish. Maybe he reattached the head. Antiochus is no one's cute mascot. And the persecutions instituted by a political slash cosmic foe serve to test the resolve of the faithful. Sort of like a final exam before graduation. The trick is to emphasize the dangers of these cosmic foes, but without magnifying them so much that they become gods themselves. They may not be part of the angelic police force like Hashatan, but like those accusers and the adversaries of the heavens, Antiochus and the water dragons are being managed by the Lord. So last episode, we talked about temptation as a moral problem, as a way of getting into the character of the devil, the history of evil, etc. This week, we're going to be talking about some more characters, the bad guys of the Hebrew Bible, the source that's really instrumental for putting a lot of flesh on the bones of Christian ideas of evil. We're going to be looking at the antecedents, the prefigurations of the devil who will develop later on. And so we're going to be talking about all kinds of baddies like sea monsters and tyrants and uh, angel cops. So what kind of evil does the Leviathan or the sea dragons represent, Travis? Like what, what, are, what sort of image of evil are we getting with these characters? To get at that question, I think we need to start at the very beginning to get kind of an extended backstory on who this Leviathan character is. Right. I, th- I think the part you're talking about is from uh, the first chapter of Genesis, uh, really early on, quote, the earth was a formless void and darkness covered the face of the deep while a wind or spirit from God swept over the face of the waters. Exactly. So what's translated here as formless void or tohu vavohu in the original Hebrew is a bit of a confusing word. Scholars who are experts in this language and in this literature don't really know, especially the second word. It doesn't occur anywhere else in the Hebrew Bible. But this first word could mean either, on the one hand, kind of emptiness or nothingness, like you see as it's translated here. But there's another possibility here, and that's chaos. Mm. And if the word means chaos, that has some serious ramifications for later Jewish and Christian doctrines, theological doctrines, especially this one that's sometimes called creation ex nihilo, which just means out of nothing. Creation from nothing. Yeah. Yeah. So that's um, part of this concern that happens later. This is not endemic to the Genesis text itself, but these later thinkers wanted to incorporate Hellenistic philosophical ideas Mm -hmm. with their religious ideas. But scholars like John Levinson argue that the text itself doesn't in fact accord with that later theological idea, that idea that God created the world out of absolute nothing, that there was just uh, a void and nothingness, and then out of that, God creates the world. But that, that doesn't quite jive with what we see in the text here. In other words, that chaos might be the better translation for this phrase. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, I think when you look at the whole narrative of chapter one, you're seeing order being imposed on primordial chaos. We have these separations of sky from sea, sea from earth, and all this sort of reads like almost like a, like a recipe or a set of instructions for how to do 
a like a, a ritual. Um, and this is why scholars of the Hebrew Bible consider um, this creation story recorded in Genesis as having been written by you know, uh, an author or a set of writers who are really interested in the priestly tradition of ancient Israel. And so it's, it's known as the, the P source from, for the priestly strap. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that helps us see that this is not simply a tale of origins, but it's an articulation of a lived religious tradition. We see that reflected in that concern about ritual practice, cleanliness, division, order, et cetera. That's really helpful to remember. But speaking of remembering, we went down this road in order to explain a kind of extended backstory of Leviathan to get at the question of what kind of evil does the Leviathan or these sea dragons represent? So let's let's get back to Leviathan for a second. Yeah, yeah. We can think about this, I think, because it forms a nice contrast where you have like, you know, a creation story that reads like, you know, the instructions for this kind of religious ritual, you know, versus thinking about creation as combat. Um, And sources from uh, the ancient Near East that were sort of contributing to Israelite ancient religion, um, there's all these myths about combat as the beginning of the world. Um, In one of these, the Enuma Elish, um, the hero god Marduk slaughters his grandmother Tiamat, who represents the, the oceanic chaos. Um, and this word, this name Tiamat becomes the word for the waters of Genesis 1-2, which is Tehom. Um, and so there's sort of a, a sort of really direct inheritance there. Um, but in the beginning of Genesis, there, you know, the, the combat part of God's encounter with chaos is really tamped down, neglected, or, you know, completely unacknowledged. Um, But it's still kind of lurking there in the linguistic waters of the text. And we get a version of it through the story of creation as this slaying of the dragon. Um, Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. We have kind of a secret backstory, if you will, to the Genesis creation narrative that and it's so hard because it's like so hard to figure out like what's older, like the Psalms or, you know, all these other things that might be, you know, candidates as the backstory. It's, it's really hard to figure out like what was written first or, or whatever. Oh yeah. I feel the whole question of this history of the devil is about, wait, where do you begin? Where do you begin? Yeah, we sort of yeah. keep coming up with this. And of course it's as a helpful reminder, you know, Genesis is not necessarily first in the Hebrew Bible, et cetera. Um, But more broadly in this history of ideas, we're not tracing a, this was the first idea, this is the second idea. Yeah, yeah. But instead there are all these entry points. So you brought up Psalms. We should talk about Psalms in particular in relation to Leviathan because in Psalm 74, for example, you have kind of a revisiting of the Genesis narrative in which the sea monsters are blessed as good, right? In that Genesis narrative, we didn't actually discuss this yet, but on the fifth day of creation, God creates all the things in the sea, including sea monsters, right? And uh, they're, yeah. and then just like everything else in, in creation at the end of the day, which of course starts with the evening and then the morning, um, then following the Hebrew tradition of how you count days, everything is pronounced good at the end, right? Of each day. Right. 
and sea monsters are good, which is kind of interesting. But in 74, in Psalm 74, God actually is the one who destroys Leviathan, destroys these sea monsters as well. Um, So we have that notion on the one hand, but in a different Psalm, Psalm 104, there's, depending on how you translate, there's some linguistic ambiguity here. Um, Leviathan is God's plaything the thing that you made to play with, right? Which is super different from the thing that you destroy. We've got all these different simultaneous ideas of sea monsters through Genesis and the Psalms. So my question is to get back to where we're going with the podcast is what does this say about Satan? If we see connections between these sea monsters and the devil, which we of course do, then we have to acknowledge that the devil is not just the embodiment of evil, but also, as you've pointed to, there's a kind of tragic affirmation of the female maternal deity, that's Tiamat, remember, or the waters, as she shows up sort of in the background in Genesis. Um, And we have a recharacterization of the struggle here between God and Satan or Leviathan as having an element, perhaps, of delight and joy on the one hand. So sometimes there's a little bit of playing, sometimes there's destruction between the two. So this, right. the nature of that relationship really shifts as you move from text to text. It's not a fixed singular thing. Right. And, and on, that, on that note, um, you have this sort of tragic combat between Marduk and, and Tiamat who gets duped into uh, destroy, destroying the, the younger gods um, or trying to. And that's different than, you know, Yahweh breaking leviathan's head in psalm 74 but yep. as you're saying there's difference between psalm 74 and 104 uh, and these these sort of this poetry of praise that we sort of it's really mysterious to know what the psalms were really even for um or how they functioned but there's a difference and you can point at the ways in which the context of composition could have really influenced you know this seems pretty clear but like the mood of of uh of this topic um when things are going well you know the the arch fiend of chaos is, is, is domesticated. And when things are going bad, it's an enemy. It's like this monster that needs to be killed. Absolutely. Oh, I love the way you characterize that. Um, I think it might be helpful here to turn to the book of Job. Yeah. Where God extols Leviathan's terrible, you know, Godzilla-like body (laughs) with most of the emphasis on how Leviathan cannot be defeated by anyone other than its creator. In other words, Leviathan exists in order to demonstrate God's power as a kind of foil, right? See how scary and powerful this monster is. I'm even more powerful, God seems to say. So the emphasis on power here is made explicit near the end of this description. It's an extended description that we get in Job of Leviathan. And I love this line. Leviathan is king over all that are proud. Yeah. And I like that because you get a kind of foreshadowing of the Christian emphasis on the devil's pride, showing how Leviathan is really all about power, all about kingship, and all about being this foil to God. Right. And it's interesting because it can be that and also be a symbol for God at the same time. And so I'm I'm thinking of of the political philosopher Thomas Hobbes, who writes his big treatise on the state, on its existence, its justification, on the social contract. And he names it Leviathan. 
Um, and you're like, that's a, that's a pretty strange name for something you're trying to give a positive valuation to. <laughs> and sort of Hobbes has this, this kind of authoritarian bent in, in his ideas and he's is, is a royalist and, and, and in the court, you know, in, in France when the, the Republic is happening in, in England in the 17th century. Um, but yes, for Hobbes, the state is imagined as this monster. And he's like, well, why Leviathan? Um, and back in the early modern period, uh, scholars, people who made lexicons, people who were Hebraists, thought that Leviathan was this sort of composite Hebrew word that meant sort of combination of things mashed together with the word for, dra- for dragon. Um, later scholars think it's just a word from, from Ugarit that is, it was just borrowed wholesale in the Hebrew scriptures. Um, but Hobbes has this idea of the state or the commonwealth being this combination of the will and assent of all the people who entered into the social contract and this, this sort of collection of the, the sort of the general public built up together into this monstrous force, which he names as a, as a God on earth. Um, and he is using in some sense, Job as, you know, suffering Job who goes through all this loss as a stand-in for humanity in the state of nature before it enters into the compact that forms the Leviathan. So Job needs to submit to God uh, and God is the master Leviathan. And the sort of the, the rhetoric of this sort of points to human beings need to submit to the state because this is, this is the God, this is God's representative. This is God on earth, not just representative, but like this is a God on earth. Okay. So Hobbes, not a fan of your kind of rebel revolutionary, you know, that's not his game. That's what I'm taking yeah, from this. Yeah. But <laughs> funny, it seems like people who are more of a fan of that have a different point of view on, on Satan. We'll, we'll get to this later, but yeah. Yeah. It's, that's interesting in light of the, it seems that he's pointing to a very particular part of the Leviathan history here, right? Yeah. Because it's possible to trace another history where Leviathan could represent that rebel, but that's not at all where he goes. Okay. Yeah, exactly. Right. It's, it's, it's the, the Leviathan that's the plaything, not the Leviathan that is, it's a little, it's, you know, the plaything is also a terrible monster, like you say, like it's a terrible monster that's been beaten. In Psalm 74, it's a terrible monster that's had its head bashed in. There's like, there's a different emphasis, you know? Right, right. Okay. Well, moving from Hobbes, there are other important sort of touchstones on where Leviathan comes up again. And one of those is, of course, John Milton's Paradise Lost, whom we will treat, which we will treat in a future episode with much more detail. But I just want to... Stay, stay tuned, guys. Just right, stay, stay tuned. tuned for the future episode. <laughs> uh, but for now, I, I just want to point to one of the opening scenes in book one where the fallen Satan is lying, has, has just fallen from the heavens, right? And is lying in a lake of fire. And Milton takes a moment to compare that enormous body of the fallen angel, first to a Titan, um, and then second to Leviathan. This body is so big that sailors might mistake it for an island. We really have to take time on the size here, which, mm. you know, is a proxy for power. Tale mm. as old as time, am I right? But on, on the other hand, I think there's something deeper going on. Satan in Milton's epic is power hungry. And at least so far as 
he is the ruler of the fallen angels, he is a tyrant in the kind of most general sense of the word, and also as the kind of would-be leader of heaven. He's a rebel who wants to take over. Right. So we were talking about Leviathan as a political symbol for power, kingship, possibly tyranny. And so we're going to talk next about a group of a sort of a rogues gallery of, of enemies from the Hebrew Bible, uh, in particular political tyrants. Um, and so one of the most striking and, you know, sort of early examples of this is Pharaoh from the book of Exodus. Um, and Pharaoh doesn't come across as the most pleasant fellow in his early interactions with Moses and Aaron. And he hardens his own heart against this. And this is the language of the text. A lot of hard harding, you know, like this is, it's, it's, it sounds painful, you know, like it sounds like he needs like some sort of uh, pharmaceutical product to help his heart gets, you know, a little bit less hard. Um, oh yeah. It's like, heart, it's definitely some sort of like ancient Egyptian heartburn that's going on. It's like here. a Tums or something, you know? Yes. Yeah. Like, um, and, but so he's doing it to himself, some auto hard heartening, whatever. Um, <laughs> but then in key moments of key moments of decision where like Pharaoh's like, well, maybe I will let these people go. Um, it, the text makes it very clear that God is the one making the tyrant, exacerbating these sort of tyrannical impulses and this oh. stubbornness. Yeah. Can you back up for a second? So just to remind our listeners of like what's happening in Exodus, you know, these ancient Israelites, right. Who are right, enslaved yeah, yeah. by Pharaoh. Right. Yeah. So the ancient Israelites enslaved by Pharaoh. Um, and then Moses is sent by God after Moses escapes. He's, he's, you know, he is according to the story, uh, an Israelite, he escapes and is sent back by God to liberate his people, his chosen people. Right. Um, so that's so what sets he, up our kind of right, and so, Pharaoh and so letting Pharaoh, my people go. He has to, like, he has okay. to persuade Pharaoh to, to let, let the, children of Israel go. And um, he has a hard time doing that despite all the plagues and, and crazy miracles and rods turning into snakes and, you know, all kinds of ample moments of demonstration. Uh, God keeps hardening Pharaoh's heart uh, as a way of showing his own power. There's this kind of like spectacular demonstration of power, the spectacle of power that uh, God is using this this tyrant to to manifest. Who's your God? I'm your God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not this bum. <laughs> exactly right. The Israelites have the greatest God who can deliver yeah. them, and that needs to be remembered by everyone. There's a sense right. of right the memorialization of this ritually, of course, but and textually as well. Yeah, but it's already that that's already built into the text here. Okay, I think that leads us toward this idea of the opponent of God. If we think of Pharaoh as God's enemy, as a precursor of the devil in some way, then what's convenient about this is that even though we have God literally changing the will of Pharaoh, tampering inside that uh, maybe sacrosanct human free will, according to later theologians at least. Can't be so sacrosanct if his heart is so hard all the time. There's gotta be some some problems with that heart. <laughs> there definitely are some, some with issues with free No, will. absolutely, right? But it, can be, it sure is convenient, right? For God, God gets to be good if there's a kind of separation of evil from God in this opponent here as Pharaoh, which keeps God as 
always and everywhere the good guy. Again, as a demonstration of, of power, but also I would argue of goodness. You need that foil in, in Pharaoh. Do you think that's right? Yeah, and I think, you know, relative to the sort of history we're telling of the devil, we have a significant prefiguration in the tyrant of Pharaoh. And we're sort of, we're using this idea from, from Adam Kotzko, who, who sort of makes this kind of provocative argument that, you know, you shouldn't look for all these places where Satan gets used. It's really, this is a political story. And so we got to look at the political villain and it's Pharaoh. Um, and Pharaoh is this foil to God, this enemy of God. And the role of foreign enemy leaders evolves or develops or just changes over the course of the Hebrew Bible. In later prophetic literature, when Judah and the northern kingdom of Israel are being invaded by Assyrians and Babylonians and, and all these things ruled by Persians and then you know, wah, wah. all the, all the you know, everything, you know, the, these these foreign leaders are, are tools of God's vengeance. So we go from like enemy to tool. And then by the time we get, you know, later on, late, you know, sort of tor- you know, close to the development of Christianity uh, and the, the sort of onset of Hellenization and Rome's domination of the Near East, foreign leaders start to look like these demonic opponents kind of, in some ways lapsing back into Pharaoh's role, um, but more exaggerated and more of a sense that the the story is about to end because this guy is the worst. Yeah, I think that notion of foreign leaders, including Pharaoh, I would say, as a tool of God, if God is using Pharaoh to demonstrate God's own power through manipulating the free will of Pharaoh, then isn't God in some way morally culpable? That's the difficult theological question that I think is underlying this struggle between, you know, God on the one hand and foreign leaders who are evil on the other. If God is using them as tools, that really complicates things, doesn't it? Yeah, for sure. And and it's, it's complicated because they're supposed to be at one's enemies, tools, you know, part of some big plan. You know, and this sort of God's like, got a plan. It's a little confusing. God's, God's got a plan for that. Okay. God's got a plan, and you're the bad guy in it. But if you're the bad guy in the plan, like, isn't isn't you know, are you aren't isn't there like someone with a higher pay grade who should be responsible? You know, like like God Himself. You know, that's I think that's what you're getting at, right? Exactly. Right. If God gets to use these folks, then it seems like God bears some of the weight of resp- the responsibility for what those well, people so, do, I, the I evil actions they commit. Yeah. And so then this is a question of like, what is, what is God as a leader, right? And um, if we have these bad foils in Pharaoh or Antiochus who are serving as precursors to the devil or Satan, then like, what are we supposed to make of a good king? What does a proper king look like? Hmm. Um, and I and and we talked about this before, uh, but before King David, before the the Israelite monarchy, we had you know these judges running things, prophets, you know like Joshua and Moses. There was a sort of thoroughgoing suspicion of monarchy, um, you know, or maybe a sense that there couldn't be a human monarch who was going to be this kind of idolatrous figure like Pharaoh. There had to be just Yahweh, God, the Lord, as the sort of the king. 
Um, and so I think it's a really good question. Like if these people are, you know, these important enemies of God in the text, then like what, what does good leadership look like? Yeah. It's a question that I think gets referenced, if not fully answered in First Samuel, right? That's the place where the Lord says to Samuel, right? In this prophetic mode, the people have essentially rejected me from being king over them. That is the Lord's kingship has been rejected because what do they want? They want an earthly king. They want royalty. Give me Queen Elizabeth or whatever it is. They want someone sitting on the throne. show. They need like a Netflix series. They they definitely need to start watching The Crown. Um, But they don't, but so that's their demand. And so God responds to their entreaties and says, okay, you can have a king, but... What kind of king do they get, Klaus? Is it is it everything that they ever wanted in a king in their Netflix special? No, in in, in typical pettiness, they get like a crappy self-centered king in the person of Saul. Um, so God's like, okay, here, take it, you know. <laughs> and it, you know, this king doesn't end up looking so great. Yeah, but it does. I mean, we didn't really answer the question of like, what does God's kingship look like, other than the fact that it is it's it's a kind of answer by negation that it's whatever it is it's better than human this this system of human kingship right there's like some wizard of oz stuff going on here you know like uh, somewhere behind the curtain yeah but then after saul who do they get they get the dreamy the dream boat king david himself you know, know. they get the they get so the, cute right they get so this hot. guy you know he's he's like he's a shepherd he's he's killing giants with a sling and stone you know like he's just he's just living that life you know Amazing. and uh you know singing he's and, definitely singing the psalms too yeah so. he's singing all this poetry oh he's, he's just like so multi-talented you know just don't you know don't ask him to take a census you know that's whatever you do like don't talk to that guy about counting people but um but yeah otherwise <laughs> yeah. you know this guy he's great he, they get they get like a whole new understanding of their relationship with God. They're going to have this eternal covenant through this Davidic royal line, you know, and this gets picked up by the, the authors of the new Testament. They're like, yeah, we, we've traced the line. Mm, right. You know, Jesus is related to King David. I mean, awkwardly um, through his, through Joseph, who is not his father. So right, that's right. Weird. Don't ask too many questions. Don't ask too many questions about the, the ancestry. <laughs> yeah. Or just like a really serious, you know, notion of adoption as part of ancestry, which, you know, I can totally respect. So that's cool, right? Right. But even this good king messes up a lot. Um, and especially in, in Samuel and the king's depiction. Uh, later versions, like in Chronicles, are a little rosier mm-hmm. a, a, bit, a bit later. Yeah. Um, but, you know, David's a, a great politician. You know, he's a charismatic person. He's a capable administrator, um, but he's got, he's got some issues. Um, bit of a ladies man. But, bit of a ladies yeah. Man. You know, he's, he's not exactly known for, you know, total self-control in, in situations that might, you know, tempt him, you know, to go back to the first episode. Um, but so he still ends up paling in contrast to a kind of heavenly king. Right. Right. But let's get back to that idea. You know, what kind of heavenly king do we have here? Is it, is this a good thing, this idea of God as king, as ruler, or is God more like a tyrant? Another way of putting that, is God the problem? Or is it the case that 
because God gets all these convenient adversaries in foreign kings, in you know the tyrants, and sometimes sea monsters, what have you, does God sort of successfully foist that bad part, that bad model of kingship onto these other figures um, and thereby retain a kind of a sense of not only greatness and power, but also goodness. Yeah. And, and, and I think the first, the opening scenes of Job really bring that home where, you know, God sets up the accuser to consider Job as a perfectly pious human being and lets the accuser torment Job and put him through hell. Uh, and then the Satan figure comes back and, and, and God's like, well, why'd you make me do that? You know, there's a sort of disingenuousness to the whole thing. Um, and I think we, it's sort of, for me, it's a really good example of how these stories and these theologies keep trying to find a way to make God pure, good, and all-powerful. And like, those are hard to hold together because it ends up making God responsible. Yeah, it seems that they're hard to hold together philosophically. That, that's, yeah. that task in itself is hard enough. But when you also are, in, are indebted to these stories in the form of sacred scripture, then you're really between a rock and a hard place, right? And, and when that, those stories are being informed by much older stories, like these myths of, of primordial combat, it gets pretty, pretty hairy um, when the, the sort of decisive moments of creation are decapitations of, of uh, these sort of vaguely maternal sea dragon figures. You know, violence begets violence. And I think that that's something that we're seeing as part of the complication of trying to at once assert God's transcendent omnipotence and assert God's loving goodness, right? Yes. And the figure, well, these figures, I guess we could say, of God's opposition, these precursors of the devil, only offer so much help in that quest to find a God who fulfills all of these theological commitments that especially later Christians are, um, are the beginning point of any, you know, orthodox theology. Okay, so if God isn't responsible for evil, then we need somebody who is. And that gets at this notion of, as we trace these different stories we have, especially in the Hebrew Bible, we have the role of the adversary, the Hashatan. But now, as we talk about that, this idea kind of codifying into a persona, a character, Satan, this named figure, we need that because we need someone to bear responsibility. If God isn't doing it, then a, you know, a role can't do it. We need a persona. We need a character, right? But how do we distinguish, Klaus, between in these stories, these separate stories, this idea of a role of the adversary and this idea of a character or a persona? Yeah, and I think we, this takes us back to Job, it takes us back to other parts we've talked about, like in Zechariah. Um, but one of the ideas uh, mentioned before was that uh, Satan or Hashatan or the Hashatanim are these part of this like angelic bureaucracy and that they are tools for surveillance and provocation for God. Oh my um, gosh, angelic, angelic bureaucracy sounds 
horrible and dystopic just as a side yeah, note yeah yeah you know but there, that's that, that's i think that's the point um <laughs> <laughs> um but uh you know these these angels like in, in some uh rabbinical and and early uh midrash the, these angels can only perform one task they they are very powerful maybe even very intelligent but compared to human beings they don't have the same level of complexity and self-awareness and so they have to be sort of still attached very firmly to god's governing apparatus which doesn't do a whole lot for creating another person who's responsible for evil we get sort of brief previews of this happening even internal to the angelic police surveillance force um, in the the book of Zechariah. And there's a moment where one of these Satans kind of goes rogue, opposes what God is saying that God wants. And this suggests that we have this other will opposing God's will. And this sets up the possibility that okay, well, we've been, you know, we've been asking about how God rules, what makes God, God's rule good. Well, maybe God isn't the only ruler. Maybe there's this possibility of dualism. Uh, and this creates a lot of anxiety and creates a lot of problems for the theological writers and storytellers we've been engaging with. Absolutely. And when we talk about dualism, Right, we mean now we've got kind of a God versus Satan. We have two sides at play here, contesting power over what have you, creation, the cosmos, etc. Another way of answering this question of you know how do we get from role to persona when we think about the devil might be well, we need a persona as a kind of someone to foist this evil onto the dirty work Fuck has God. to get done it's and we can't God. have good without yeah. evil right yeah yeah i mean th without that contrast there's no meaning to claiming that god is always an and and everywhere good it just it, the, the whole system falls apart because if you didn't have that you would just have a god who is you wouldn't have a god who is good and i think the integrity of these stories aside from these larger philosophical theological principles, the integrity of the stories would fall apart. Yeah. And I think w without, you know, without, we, without the contrast, the integrity falls apart. And then as we've been saying, without a persona or a person or a subject that has a will, we wouldn't get the successful externalization of God's responsibility. And yet at the same time, once you do that, you're caught in this bind because it suggests dualism, as you've been saying. Um, and so we might ask, okay, well, that seems like a headache. What else is incentivizing in the cultures and, and, and sort of intellectual traditions that are building up towards the idea of a, a apocalyptic tyrant or a Satan figure? Like what motivates this? What, why is this attractive in any way? And one way I think that we've, we've, been, we've been seeing is that there are all these different visions of evil that we've encountered in the Hebrew Bible and sort of the texts that are sort of attached to it in relationship to it. Um, we have like these rebellious, would-be angel quasi-angelic rulers like Lucifer, and we have this crafty serpent. 
and we have this, you know, renegade or at least sort of not wholly beneficial member of the heavenly council and in, in the Satan figure from, from Job, these, and, and, and a cha- the challenge of dealing with monstrous sea dragons, we have these different character types who are fleshing out a vision for what is opposing God's good order and structure. And there might be then a motivation to, you know, systematize these different characters to make them all on some team, to make them all on some team or at least, or even more ambitiously as part of someone's identity, uniting them into a person. And so maybe it's organizing all these attributes that helps us understand how we get up to this sort of paradoxical or at least very troublesome dualistic possibility that on the one hand seems to get God off the hook for moral responsibility for a lot of this bad stuff. And on the other hand, sets up the possibility that God is not the sovereign. Yes. And I think this persona of the devil this moving toward a kind of conglomerate that where you can recognize in each of these stories, a different perhaps facet of the same unifying force, but, more specifically, the same unifying character, persona, divine being, helps move us from what is merely a moral problem on the one hand into cosmology, into the idea that evil is a kind of feature of the universe built into the cosmos. And the devil serves as the kind of face of that evil force. Well, I think we're going to wrap up right now. And next time, we're going to be thinking about the ways in which that evil force, the dark side, is combated in, in the Christian tradition, particularly looking at exorcism, and particularly Jesus as an exorcist, the way possession and exorcism worked in the early modern period among some French nuns, and then seeing how these themes of, of possession and exorcism get staged in everyone's favorite 70s horror movie, The Exorcist. See you next time. All right, see you next time. This pod is made possible by support from the Satanic Horde, Asmodeus, Mammon, Leviathan, Beelzebub, and listeners like you. Thank you.